If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115, our text for this morning, for our message, Those Who Make Them. Well, not all brilliant ideas were on purpose. Founded in 1912 in Cincinnati, the company's primary product, Cuddle Products, made soft, appliable compound used for wiping the soot off of wallpaper. That old-fashioned way of heating your home with coal left a lot of soot on that, well, dated wallpaper on the wall. But as time went by in the mid-1900s, there was no longer such a demand for that kind of project. The, the future of the firm looked bleak. They had lots of putty and a lot less soot to clean up around here. But like most good problems, if you need a solution, just give it to a mom. Fortunately, the sister-in-law of one of the company's principals had an idea, let's let kids play with it. And Cuddle Products had become the largest wallpaper cleaner manufacturer in the world, and before they knew it, they were making what we all know as Play-Doh. That was her idea. She took it and tested it. She was a, a nursery school teacher, and she gave it to children, and they loved molding it into all kinds of shapes, and she began to suggest a name that we carry today. And of course, the Play-Doh modeling compound is a playtime phenomenon. Now it's owned by Hasbro, which means that's how it comes to you in these little plastic yellow bottles that you remember so fondly with a, a scent that takes you back years. It was just as recently as 2018, Hasbro actually has been granted the trademark rights. No, not to the logo or the name, but to this very particular smell. And they describe it in that application, and I quote, it smells as a sweet, slightly musky vanilla fragrance with slight overtones of cherry combined with the smell of a salted wheat-based dough. That's a lot of undertones for some Play-Doh. They've sold more than three billion cans since its debut in 1956. The urban legend has it that if you took all the Play-Doh compound created since 1956 and put it through the Play-Doh Fun Factory playset, you know, that makes it into a tube, you could make a snake that would wrap around the world 300 times. Everybody's dream. <laughs> and of course, you can go wrong with Play-Doh too. If you live in a world where it's negative 50% humidity, you have about 10 seconds before it hardens to a crisp. You turn your back, it's gone. And then of course there's that other problem. They discovered it too, they made it into one of their mantras. It was actually a slogan on their commercials, on their packaging, do you remember it? Fun to play with, not to eat which is a little bit misleading, I think, because all of the accessories that they sell it with are made to make it food-shaped. It comes with plasticware in that box. And that's not even the, the Fun Factory burger set or the cupcake making or the pancake box or the noodle bar, all available at your local Walmart. Fun to play with, not to eat. It's a slogan that, unfortunately, 
I can confirm today to you. Well, like this work of our hands, the Bible talks about the other gifts that God gives us, the things that we fashion and form, the things that make up the substance of our lives. And all of Scripture seems to join with our psalm this morning in saying that the things that God gives us are good for for play, they're good for work, but not for worship. You see, we were made by God to be makers. The problem is, more than makers, we've become masters of misuse. We're like the kid in the corner who takes multiple colors at one time and, dare I say it, combines them together. Just mixes them. It's the worst thing you can do with Play-Doh, really. Worse than eating it are color mixers. Andy Crouch, the author, says that idolatry is simply the biblical name for our human capacity to take our creative power and run amok. In simpler words, he says, idolatry is when we take the good gifts of God and use them for things they were never intended to be. And so our text this morning, the proclamation of Psalm 115, joins with what feels like the countless other examples in Scripture in naming what has been called the the central theological principle in the Bible, the rejection of idolatry. And yet, as much as idolatry and the rejection of it and the the making and crushing of idols and God's war with idols all throughout the Bible, the New Testament's cry to turn away from images. Despite all of that, it's a topic that features so infrequently in our own study and worship. It's in the historical books and the prophets, the Psalms and the Gospels, the letters of Paul and the apocalyptic visions of John, and yet it receives a relatively small amount of our attention. And I suspect probably because when we think of idolatry, we think of old-fashioned ideas, problems that don't really pertain to us, things made of wood or like our text says today, gold and silver. Not many of us have statues in our home that demand our affection. And yet idolatry runs rampant today more than ever. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. It's the central concern of of two of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments command us to have no other God and to make no other image, to worship none other than the living God and to make no idol to represent that God. And so powerful is that claim against idolatry that Luther would go on to say that in order to break the rest of the eight commandments, you have to first break one of the first two. The early church fathers agreed with him. Tertullian said that the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. And it's with words that are unique to this psalm alone, Psalm 115, that our text begins by crying out, For God's name, his renown, his reputation to be restored, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. 
because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. This is the passionate cry of a people in the face of the world's challenge to them. Where is your God? Is what they've been asked. The psalm poses that question in the mouth of the other nations, of the other peoples, towards God's people. Where is your God? It's a question that comes from outside God's people in this text, but there's no doubt that it's a question the people within Israel were asking of themselves too. They'd faced an awful exile in Babylon, maybe returned to the land, and they're thinking, where is God now? What's next in all of this? It's a question that you and I and our friends and neighbors face all the time too. When tragedies strike our region or our country or our world, when things don't go the way that we planned, people ask, why? What's next? Where is your God? And the circumstances of this world leave us with these same questions echoing in our mind. They cause our, our hearts to ache and we wonder with these ancient predecessors of ours about the, about the presence and the promise of God. Where is your God? And those, those moments when we ask those questions and even the moments of our greatest successes are all temptations Temptations for us to join with all the other peoples and let our hands set out on our own, to forge our own next steps, to secure our own future, to do what we can by our own might. So Psalm 115 joins with hundreds of warnings and scriptures that would remind us that our only way forward is with God and through God. And yet from the work of man's hands, the psalmist cries in 115 verse 4, has come useless idols of silver and gold. Because the truth is, given the, the good and creative gifts of God, we have made gods for ourselves that are so unworthy of our devotion. And it turns out that the great sin of man all the way from the beginning was the blurring of the line between creator and creation. It's the way that the first idolatry enters the world when in a moment of temptation, evil in the form of that serpent comes to Adam in Genesis chapter three and tempts him that if he would just ignore God's boundaries, he could be like God. And the lines between the creator and the creation start to get blurred. And before we know it, man has made gods for himself, has made idols to worship, has worshiped himself before too long. The greatest sin of man is blurring the lines between God and creation. Early church father Augustine called this disordered love. And for him, it was sin in its most basic form. We have to love things, he says, in the right order. So that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved. In our best moments and even in our most difficult ones, that's the temptation for us, isn't it? To start loving what is not to be loved and to not love what should be loved. And that was Israel's temptation 
in days like this when they would read this psalm. But the truth is it wasn't written for the people outside of Israel. The psalms were written for the people within. This is a, a proclamation to remind them to, to, to firm up their conviction that there's a distinction between the creator God and everything else that exists everywhere. And you can make what you want, the text tells us. It can have mouths and ears and hands, but they're not going to be able to speak or hear or feel. And the Bible offers various reflections on the gods that we create. And this morning, I want us to consider, to think together about the idols that we form today. You see, idolatry dethrones God and enthrones creation. And we may not be tempted with gold or silver or wood or stone. But once this line between God and creation is blurred, once that reversal takes place, creation no longer knows where to find its meaning and we start to look in all kinds of places. And the, the Bible suggests several ways this process starts, several root idols that tend to feed our idolatry. And I want to offer you four things that are not all, but are, are four primary ways that we tend to manufacture our so-called gods. You see, we make idols first from things that entice us. We make idols from things that entice us. Deuteronomy chapter 4 sets out to forbid idolatry in verse 19. It says, when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Like our psalm, that language reminds us that there are things in creation that are so awe-inspiring, that, that are so much beyond our reach and our control, so beyond our understanding that, frankly, we're just really impressed by them. We're attracted to these things. And when we're allured, enticed by them, not maybe the sun or the moon or the stars, but other things that we long to worship, we personify them into gods that capture our devotion. Psalm 96 recognizes this temptation when it says, all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You see, rather than finding these things, splendor, majesty, strength, beauty, rather than finding them in God, we give our attention and devotion to the splendor and the majesty, the strength and the glory that we see in our own world. And we join with those Old Testament people in blurring the line between the creator and creation. And we worship these things. They get our devotion, our attention. They become all-consuming to us because they inspire us. They, they call us to sacrifice more and more to them like all idols do. And we worship them in, in stadiums of great sporting triumph or in the lives of their sporting heroes. We worship them on the stages of concerts and the glare of TV and movie celebrity. We, we worship them in parades of might and military strength and the powerful machines that equip them. We worship them in the, the pinnacle of our economic towers and corporations, the captivating consumer goods that we just have to have. And all of these things can be enticing 
But when those good things are allowed to be greater than they were designed to be, they become idolatrous. They become the very things that we worship. They become creation made to be like creator. But proclaim the Psalms. These are not where we will find our gods. You see, we're tempted to make idols from the things that entice us. We're also tempted to make idols from the things that we fear. We make idols not only of the things that attract us, but also the things that we fear. It's part of why fear of the Lord is such a recurring theme in the biblical worldview, isn't it? Because God alone should be the object of our our reverence and our awe and our fear. Those who live in fear of the Lord live in fear of nothing else. But when we are afraid, when we are at risk, when we become vulnerable, we reach out to make idols of the things that we fear. It's been pointed out that although in our contemporary Western society we live lives that are immeasurably more safe, more healthy, and more free from risk than any previous generation in history. And despite that, we are consumed by anxiety and fears and inhibitions. It's because fueled by this kind of unrelenting amount of hype and information that we're fed by all sorts of sources, we become victims of the next crisis, frenzied by the latest hysteria. Our leaders pitch their brand as crisis and leave us in peril, wondering how could we possibly solve the next big problem. And when we become afraid, our affections go in all directions. And our fear takes us to idols. And things we fear can have idolatrous grip. People, parties, enemies, countries, safeties. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. In a similar way, we idolize not only things that entice us, the things that we fear, but also things that we trust. We make idols of the things we trust so they can deliver us from the things that we fear. You see how that works? The moment we become afraid of this world or feel threatened, we turn to other sources in this world that can play the role the creator God was supposed to play. And when our ultimate faith is placed in those things, when we believe that the the promises that are made by them or the sacrifices they ask of us and we give them what they want, they become the objects of our worship. But the truth is, there's only one thing about a false God you can really depend on. And false gods never fail to fail. 
And when we give our ultimate trust in what can never deliver ultimate security, we've created a new object for our faith. You fill in the blank. Financial security, a new you that's healthier or lives longer or more comfort, safety for your family, protection, escape from difficulties, personal fulfillment. Idols ask more and more while giving you less and less until eventually they demand everything and give you nothing in return. That's why the scriptures over and over again become so adamant that no one make for themselves a graven image. And it seems like foolishness to people today who are thinking, I've never been tempted to worship a graven image. It's because anything that takes the place of God, anything that we would be tempted to to put our focus on instead of the true and living God as he is, can become the thing we idolize. And friends, that's the immense blessing of knowing the Lord. It's to know that the only secure place to put our investment of trust is in the Lord himself. And from there, we wait and hope and enjoy and in patience and with all of the difficult questions for the outcome that only he can bring in his unfailing love. And so Psalm 33 reminds us our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. We fashion gods from things that entice us, from things that we fear, from things that we trust. And lastly, we make idols from things that we need. I mean, by nature, we have lots of needs. And yes, some of you here today are are more needy than others, but all of us have great needs. The Old Testament world struggled again and again to depend on God for all of their needs. They, They needed the same things we do, like food and air water and shelter, sleep, and all that is required for our survival and and well-being. But it's possible. It is possible that our wholeness, our well-being, isn't found ultimately in the good Father who gives, but in the gifts themselves. And so we become tempted as we make idols of the things that we need to focus on the gift and to love it so much that we forget about the giver and worship the gift itself. And when we fail to acknowledge the living God of all that is as the source of all of our needs, we create an idol to be worshiped, a God for ourselves. Or worse, we start to worship ourselves instead. We look around at all of our needs being met and we start to think, look how hard I work. Look how much I have. Look at what I've built. Look at how I provide. And like the Israelite farmer of Deuteronomy 8, we boast my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Or like the Egyptian Pharaoh of Ezekiel 29, we say the Nile is mine. I made this river for myself. 
See, these are some of the forces, and there are so many more that the Bible itself describes as lying behind the things that we idolize. Having alienated ourselves from the living God, our creator, we have a tendency to worship whatever impresses us with its brilliance and magnificence and entices us. We seek to ward off or appease whatever makes us feel vulnerable or afraid. We counter our fears by giving idolatrous trust in whatever we think will provide the security that we really crave. And we struggle to manipulate or persuade whatever we believe will provide all of our most basic needs and yes, even our wants. And these, these are the idols that we make. And the Bible is full of, of so many more. People making idols out of the sun and the moon and the stars, out of a, a nation's strength, out of a people's army. Kings and political leaders can become idols. There are rain gods and fertility gods. People worship sex and money and anything else that was possible to covet. People even worship themselves. And it's not that each of these things possessed some kind of alluring or godlike powers. It's not that any single one of them was bad in and of itself. It's that in reality, they weren't gods at all. But something happens in the sinful mind and the human heart that gives them godlike qualities that they don't really possess. And we're here today in our worship to proclaim in our song, in our reading of the word, and even in our gathering together to lay claim to a different truth, that the gods of this world have no power here. There is only one true and living God. And what our world needs more than anything else is you, is a people who would stand up in the midst of the world's lies of consumerism and greed, of protection and fear, of trust and enticement and say, these will not be our gods. The world needs people, men and women, who will stand up with discerning minds and thoughtful hearts and look at the ways we speak about our world, the things that we give ultimate value to and too much trust in, who will stand up in the midst of those things and say, people of God, do not worship these idols. For from the beginning, God has been set out, working diligently to redeem and reconcile his people who have blurred the lines between creator and creation, and we must not join with them. We will join instead with the people who proclaimed, like Psalm 115, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because these things aren't faithful that want my devotion. Only you are. They don't have loving kindness. I only know what loving kindness is because God showed it to me. They have no truth. There is only one truth. And his name is Jesus. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the real king of this world except through him. It was John Calvin who said that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. In creating idols, he said, we substitute vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God, but to these evils, another is added. The God 
whom man has conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. And this is the tragic truth that rings forth at the end of our reading from today in Psalm 115, verse 8, that those who make idols become like the idols they have made. It's a principle affirmed in several places in the Bible that you become like the object of your worship. The greatest tragedy of all is that as the idols of our world are are multiplied and our worship directed towards these images that we have created or embraced, we forfeit our God-given calling to be bearers of the only image worth bearing. The only image with ultimate meaning and majesty and value. You see, having been made as image bearers of God, we become instead like the idols of this world. And after describing those idols in our text that they cannot speak, they cannot see or hear or smell or feel or walk or talk, the psalmist says, those who make them will become like them. And that is the truth of our hearts as well as we worship things other than God, things of this created world and put our ultimate trust in them, we become like them, dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. And ultimately, all of humanity is guilty of replacing the real God with a God we made in his own, in our own image. But when the image of God when the image of God in us could no longer be seen perfectly, when like all other men and women before us, we turned from the true God and took on the image of this broken world, God sent an image to us, a form into which he says, we too can be changed again. You see, our hearts are darkened, they're inclined to evil, and like Adam, we're lost We've lost our capacity to to imitate, to reflect back God's holiness as we were created to. But the scripture proclaims that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Having been told to create no images, we made images anyways. And when we began to worship them, God sent us the image of the invisible God and the radiance, Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And just as he is now, he was when he came. And as he walked the earth in the likeness of men, Jesus perfectly displayed the only true image of God. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so it's no accident That when the Bible begins to be summarized and wrapped up at the end, the prophets and the visions of Revelation both picture a world where every idol has been crushed and every sovereign has to bow because there's only one whose power is unmatched and whose provision never fails. So when the people come asking, as they do in Psalm 115, where is your God? May we be a people who know the difference between theirs and ours. 
who turn away from the things of creation, that we might give our love and affection and our worship to the Creator. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Let's pray. Father, within us is a power to be creative, to be makers, to subdue the earth and help it flourish. And yet we have forsaken that calling to reflect back to the world your image and we have made images and idols for ourselves. Father, convict us of the things in our lives that get our ultimate devotion, that that we take our ultimate meaning, that lead and guide our lives in ways they never were intended to. Draw our hearts back to you the only true source of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.